Today is March 16th. This is Verses in Flow. I'm Jennifer Wainwright. Welcome in and welcome back. Thank you for joining me today on the next leg of our journey through the Bible in a year. There's a lot happening in both the Old and New Testaments. In Numbers, we're reading about this crafty little figure, the diviner Balaam and King Balak, who has hired Balaam because he believes Balaam can curse the Israelites for him. Of course, Balaam can't, and so Balak is getting increasingly frustrated. And then in the New Testament, in Luke, we're reading this beautiful story about the conception and birth of our Savior. These two stories could not be further apart in terms of their tone, which is why today I want to issue a disclaimer specifically about the Old Testament. If your kids are listening, today's Old Testament reading is definitely for mature audiences only. For those of us who fit that category, let's flow, feast, and be fed. Numbers chapter 24 and chapter 25, New Living Translation. By now, Balaam realized that the Lord was determined to bless Israel, so he did not resort to divination as before. Instead, he turned and looked out toward the wilderness, where he saw the people of Israel camped tribe by tribe. Then the Spirit of God came upon him, and this is the message he delivered. This is the message of Balaam, son of Beor, the message of the man whose eyes see clearly, the message of one who hears the words of God, who sees a vision from the Almighty, who bows down with eyes wide open. How beautiful are your tents, O Jacob! How lovely are your homes, O Israel! They spread before me like palm groves, like gardens by the riverside. They are like tall trees planted by the Lord, like cedars beside the waters. Water will flow from their buckets. Their offspring have all they need. Their king will be greater than a god. Their kingdom will be exalted. God brought them out of Egypt. For them, he is as strong as a wild ox. He devours all the nations that oppose him, breaking their bones in pieces, shooting them with arrows. Like a lion, Israel crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to arouse her? Blessed is everyone who blesses you, O Israel, and cursed is everyone who curses you. King Balak flew into a rage against Balaam. He angrily clapped his hands and shouted, I called you to curse my enemies. Instead, you have blessed them three times. Now get out of here. Go back home. I promised to reward you richly, but the Lord has kept you from your reward. Balaam told Balak, Don't you remember what I told your messengers? I said, even if Balak were to give me his palace filled with silver and gold, I would be powerless to do anything against the will of the Lord. I told you that I could only say what the Lord says. Now I am returning to my own people. But first, let me tell you what the Israelites will do to your people in the future. Balaam's Final Messages This is the message Balaam delivered. This is the message of Balaam, son of Beor. 
the message of the man whose eyes see clearly, the message of one who hears the words of God, who has knowledge from the Most High, who sees a vision from the Almighty, who bows down with eyes wide open. I see him, but not here and now. I perceive him, but far in the distant future. A star will rise from Jacob. A scepter will emerge from Israel. It will crush the heads of Moab's people, cracking the skulls of the people of Sheth. Edom will be taken over, and Seir, its enemy, will be conquered. While Israel marches on in triumph, a ruler will rise in Jacob who will destroy the survivors of Ur. Then Balaam looked over toward the people of Amalek and delivered this message. Amalek was the greatest of nations, but its destiny is destruction. Then he looked over toward the Kenites and delivered this message. Your home is secure. Your nest is set in the rocks. But the Kenites will be destroyed when Assyria takes you captive. Balaam concluded his messages by saying, Alas, who can survive unless God has willed it? Ships will come from the coasts of Cyprus. They will oppress Assyria and afflict Eber, but they too will be utterly destroyed. Then Balaam left and returned home, and Balak also went on his way. Moab seduces Israel. While the Israelites were camped at Acacia Grove, some of the men defiled themselves by having sexual relations with local Moabite women. These women invited them to attend sacrifices to their gods, so the Israelites feasted with them and worshipped the gods of Moab. In this way, Israel joined in the worship of Baal of Peor, causing the Lord's anger to blaze against his people. The Lord issued the following command to Moses, Seize all the ringleaders and execute them before the Lord in broad daylight, so his fierce anger will turn away from the people of Israel. So Moses ordered Israel's judges, Each of you must put to death the men under your authority who have joined in worshiping Baal of Peor. Just then, one of the Israelite men brought a Midianite woman into his tent, right before the eyes of Moses and all the people, as everyone was weeping at the entrance of the tabernacle. When Phinehas, son of Eleazar and grandson of Aaron the priest, saw this, he jumped up and left the assembly. He took a spear and rushed after the man into his tent. Phinehas thrust the spear all the way through the man's body and into the woman's stomach. So the plague against the Israelites was stopped, but not before 24,000 people had died. Then the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, son of Eleazar and grandson of Aaron the priest, has turned my anger away from the Israelites by being as zealous among them as I was. So I stopped destroying all Israel as I had intended to do in my zealous anger. Now tell him that I am making my special covenant of peace with him. In this covenant, I give him and his descendants a permanent right to the priesthood. For in his zeal for me, his God, he purified the people of Israel, making them right with me. The Israelite man killed with the Midianite woman was named Zimri, son of Salu, the leader of a family from the tribe of Simeon. 
The woman's name was Cosby. She was the daughter of Zer, the leader of a Midianite clan. Then the Lord said to Moses, Attack the Midianites and destroy them, because they assaulted you with deceit and tricked you into worshiping Baal of Peor, and because of Cosby, the daughter of a Midianite leader who was killed at the time of the plague because of what happened at Peor. Luke chapter 2 verses 1 through 35 The Birth of Jesus At that time, the Roman Emperor, Augustus, decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This was the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. All returned to their own ancestral towns to register for this census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary, to whom he was engaged, who was now expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger, because there was no lodging available for them. The Shepherds and Angels that night, there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified, but the angel reassured them. Don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David, and you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth lying in a manger. Suddenly, the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, Glory to God in highest heaven, and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. When the angels had returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, Let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. They hurried to the village and found Mary and Joseph, and there was the baby lying in the manger. After seeing him, the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said to them about this child. All who heard the shepherd's story were astonished, but Mary kept all these things in her heart and thought about them often. The shepherds went back to their flocks, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. It was just as the angel had told them. Jesus is presented in the temple. Eight days later, when the baby was circumcised, he was named Jesus, the name given him by the angel even before he was conceived. Then it was time for their purification offering, as required by the law of Moses after the birth of a child. So his parents took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. The law of the Lord says, If a woman's first child is a boy, he must be dedicated to the Lord. So they offered the sacrifice required in the law of the Lord, either a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. The Prophecy of Simeon 
At that time, there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. He was righteous and devout and was eagerly waiting for the Messiah to come and rescue Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him and had revealed to him that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. That day, the Spirit led him to the temple. So when Mary and Joseph came to present the baby Jesus to the Lord as the law required, Simeon was there. He took the child in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace. As you have promised, I have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for all people. He is a light to reveal God to the nations, and he is the glory of your people Israel. Jesus' parents were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them, and he said to Mary, the baby's mother, This child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall and many others to rise. He has been sent as a sign from God, but many will oppose him. As a result, the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your very soul. Psalm 59 for the choir director, a psalm of David regarding the time Saul sent soldiers to watch David's house in order to kill him. To be sung to the tune, Do Not Destroy. Rescue me from my enemies, O God. Protect me from those who have come to destroy me. Rescue me from these criminals. Save me from these murderers. They have set an ambush for me. Fierce enemies are out there waiting, Lord, though I have not sinned or offended them. I have done nothing wrong, yet they prepare to attack me. Wake up, see what is happening and help me. O Lord God of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, wake up and punish those hostile nations. Show no mercy to wicked traitors. Interlude. They come out at night, snarling like vicious dogs as they prowl the streets. Listen to the filth that comes from their mouths, their words cut like swords. After all, who can hear us? They sneer. But Lord, you laugh at them. You scoff at all the hostile nations. You are my strength. I wait for you to rescue me. For you, O oh God, are my fortress. In his unfailing love, my God will stand with me. He will let me look down and triumph on all my enemies. Don't kill them, for my people soon forget such lessons. Stagger them with your power and bring them to their knees. O oh Lord, our shield, because of the sinful things they say, because of the evil that is on their lips, let them be captured by their pride, their curses, and their lies. Destroy them in your anger. Wipe them out completely. Then the whole world will know that God reigns in Israel. Interlude. My enemies come out at night snarling like vicious dogs as they prowl the streets. They scavenge for food but go to sleep unsatisfied. But as for me, I will sing about your power. Each morning I will sing with joy about your unfailing love. For you have been my refuge, a place of safety when I am in distress. Oh, my strength, to you I sing praises. For you, O oh God, are my refuge, 
the God who shows me unfailing love. Proverbs 11:14. Without wise leadership, a nation fails. There is safety in having many advisors. Wow, y'all all right? Between David's description of his enemies and the savagery that we read about today in Numbers, why did these people think they could play with God like this? 24,000 people wiped out because they were worshiping a false god, playing with God. I know, I know, we play with God too when we put things and people before him. But, and maybe I'm wrong here, y'all can help me out. It seems like the fact that the Israelites had a visual of God every single day, on top of all the miracle signs and wonders they had witnessed firsthand, and what happened to Korah, the whole ground swallowing him and his followers up, what happened when Moses made the people drink the ashes mixed with water from the golden calf they had constructed and then he made them destroy, and the slaughter that happened after that, the snakes? that had just happened, you would think that they would have been wary at best and downright terrified at worst to go against God. I just don't get it. Why were they so easily deceived and so quick to disobey? It makes me wonder, are we doing the same thing now and we just don't realize it? Because God is not showing up in the same way he was then, does that mean we're more prone to turning our backs on him? A part of me wants to think that if God showed up in the same way he showed up to the Israelites, I'd be less likely to do any kind of sin. But if that's accurate, then that would mean because he isn't showing up that way, then I'm less sensitive to his presence than the Israelites should have been and that I should be which would make me, yes, more prone to disobedience and ingratitude simply because God isn't showing up as a cloud or a pillar of fire that's following me or because wonder bread isn't falling out of the sky. I mean, let's think about this. If a giant hand wrote on the walls of our living rooms, thou shalt not, and finished it off with a lightning bolt, which one of us would go against whatever that thou shalt not was? But does that mean we're only obedient because of a forceful display of power? That's a scary thought because, yeah, if God were to show up in such a way today, we might be more inclined to believe and follow him. But that would mean our obedience is more out of fear than love. And what then does that say about the condition of our hearts and the condition of the relationship that we have with him? But an even scarier thought is, what if, perhaps like the Israelites, we got so familiar with God because we did see him every day performing miracles and speaking to us audibly through the air, that we acted just like them? What if we are acting just like them? OMG, when I personally start to peel back these layers with question after question, what becomes more and more evident to me is that it's not about the visibility of God, or at least it shouldn't be, but rather the posture of my heart. Because the reality is God is still showing up every day in every possible way. So perhaps the real question is, do we have eyes to see him? 
As we reflect on the Israelites and how they were so easily influenced once again to worship a false god, we may need to confront some uncomfortable truths about our own faith and obedience. It's easy to look back at them and judge them, but is our reality that much different? We too are prone to disobedience and unfaithfulness, and we too put our own desires and pleasures above our commitment to God at times. The Israelites had tangible evidence of God's presence and power, and they still fell away from God, yes. But in much the same way, we also have tangible evidence of God, the breathtaking beauty of nature, the inexplicable miracle of life, our own spiritual experiences, all proof of His presence and provision. However, when these things become so familiar that we take them for granted and forget who's responsible for them, they lose their impact. And then it becomes easy to prioritize our wants over God's will because we no longer see Him for who He is. There is so much fertile ground in the scriptures we covered just today, so many lessons and angles which just reinforces the reason we should be slowly reading and rereading and asking questions and having conversations. And we could probably contemplate just today's reading alone for days. It's so rich. But for some reason, this is where I took off my proverbial backpack to camp out today. The good news is that as long as there is breath in our bodies, it is never too late when we have turned away from God to turn back and recommit ourselves to His will. We can learn from the mistakes of these Israelites and take heart in knowing, based on the example that we have in Scripture, that even when we stray from His path, God is still faithful. For us, it's because of the blood. Hallelujah. There is always a way back. I don't know about you, but this passage has given me a lot to ponder today. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. It is so rich and full of life. Sometimes it's hard for us to see all the hidden gems when we're in the middle of it, but please let its truth sink deep into our hearts to penetrate our souls and convict us that we are not simply reading it, but we are studying, we are meditating, we are praying and asking you to reveal to us what it is you want us to know. And Lord, we also thank you for the blood. Thank you for the gift of salvation. Thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross so that we could be redeemed from our sins and live in freedom with you. Father, so often we can feel distant, uncertain, and misunderstood. Please help us to remember that even in those times when we feel lost or far from you, there's always a way back. You found us once, and you will find us again and again and again. You are the God of second chances. Lord, when it comes to you and your word, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, a mind to understand, and a heart to feel. Your word is truth, and it will never change or fail us. Thank you, Jesus. You are our hope. You are our joy. You are our life. In you, we are free. In you, we 
live, move, and have our being because you lived, you died, and you rose again. Lord, we love you. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. And our affirmation, my dreams are within sight, my focus is unwavering, and my strength is undeniable. My dreams are within sight. My focus is unwavering and my strength is undeniable. And our aphorism, the weakest spot in any person is where they think themselves to be the wisest. That's all I have for you today. Thank you so much for being here with me. You belong here and we belong together on this journey. I'll be right here tomorrow waiting for you. Oh, and I love you. Mm-hmm. <laughs>